Most copywriters we know share an interest in psychology and figuring out what makes people tick. After all, if you're writing something to convince your prospect to buy or to take some kind of action, you need to understand them. But our interest in psychology often goes well beyond persuasion tactics and mental heuristics. Our guest for today's episode of the Copywriter Club podcast is Dr. Rebecca Fortgang, who specializes in willpower, goal setting, and mental health. Just as a quick side note, she was Kira's professor last year in a class she took. I like to point out that it was at Harvard University, that Kira is a Harvard student. Uh, we talked with Rebecca about the ins and outs of willpower, overcoming procrastination, mental health, and a lot more. We think you're really going to like this episode. But before we jump in, we are going to promote something because that's what we do. <laughs> so today, Rob, I want to talk about our new-ish course, not like brand new, but new as in a couple months ago, um, our AI for Copywriters course, um, which is available to all writers. And the reason I want to mention it today is because we're adding a certification to it, uh, a prompt engineer certification, because we know as we've been talking to a lot of startups, especially on our new podcast, AI for Creative Entrepreneurs, we're interviewing different startups um, and they're talking about the need for prompt engineers and that it's hard to find prompt engineers right now. And writers are really set up to succeed in that role because we ask good questions. We think about prompting in a creative way. And there is no university that has a prompt engineer program right now. So there's this new need in the marketplace and there aren't enough people to fill that, that role. So we're creating the program that you need to train you to not only provide the training, but also to give you a certification. And, um, you know, that usually means a boost of confidence uh, for you to, to go out there and maybe even update your LinkedIn title to include prompt engineer and maybe even pitch yourself or go after opportunities that you wouldn't normally have gone after. And so you can uh, work through that certification. It's not easy. <laughs> Rob's, Rob's making it very difficult to get it. But um, it's a tough certification because we want you to feel confident and well-trained before you actually achieve it. Yeah, it's not easy, but it's also not uh, onerous. It's not something you're going to have to sit in a classroom for four or five hours and, and work through. We teach all the information in the course that you need. As long as you go through that, do the practices, read the prompts and things that we share, uh, you will have the information that you need to get that certification. Uh, but it's uh, also not the kind of thing that you'll be able to just show up and do without uh, doing the work. And that's really the way certifications should work. So if you want uh, to earn a certification as a prompt engineer, as a copywriter who knows what they're doing when it comes to writing prompts for large language models like ChatGPT, go to thecopywriterclub.com forward slash AI4C. That is the number four C. And you can find the program there and the certification that we've just included recently. Okay, let's kick off our episode with Dr. Rebecca Fortgang. I am curious to hear how did you end up as a clinical psychologist? Yeah, I actually really did not mean to. Um, my 
parents are both clinical psychotherapists. So growing up, like when I was a little kid, I did want to be a therapist just like them or a hairdresser. Um, but then through adolescence, I was pretty committed to forging my own path. And when I went to college, I studied linguistics. But I think that for people who actually are fortunate enough to be raised by psychotherapists, it's a really wonderful thing. And it kind of hooked me. It's a lens on the world that I kept coming back to. And by the end of college, I really had, I did a thesis on schizophrenia and language. And then by the end of that experience, I was more committed to pursuing an interest in, in mental health and in psychology broadly. I think it's just an endlessly fascinating topic that there's, there's no one who, um, who probably doesn't find some element of their own minds or other people's minds interesting. Um, I continued after college. I had a position at the National Institute of Mental Health, and I was in a lab that focused on schizophrenia. And by the end of those two years, I was really hooked by a few key topics that actually still guide my career now. Um, one of them was schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders. One is impulsivity and self-control. And the third is suicide, suicidal thoughts and behaviors. And suicide, of course, is an outcome that's, that's tragic and that's far too often the uh, result of impulsive decision-making. And so that's sort of the constellation of things that I got interested in at the beginning um, and continue to be interested in. And I followed that path to, to graduate school at Yale and then a postdoctoral fellowship um, at Harvard. And then now I'm I'm kind of early career faculty at Harvard Medical School. It's amazing. You mentioned psychotherapy as a lens on the world. And I know it's really hard for us to step out of our own lenses, you know, compared to maybe what another lens would be. But I'm interested in going deeper on that. Like, what is, how does that change the way that you see the world versus someone like me who maybe doesn't have that same kind of training, uh, but is maybe still interested in that? Absolutely. I think psychology broadly is is more the lens on the world, maybe even more so than psychotherapy in particular. When I say that, I mean psychology includes also the study of the human mind and not only that interaction with someone to try to improve their lives and promote healing. I think both of those have been really important parts of my career and are really special to me and endlessly fascinating. And what they both share is a focus on people's internal experiences as part of understanding their behaviors and possibly promoting change. So even when someone does something that really annoys me, my first impulse is to try to understand what's going on in their minds that led to those behaviors that are bothering me. Um, and so that's what I mean by a lens on the world. I cannot stop myself from trying to understand what is going on in the internal worlds of other people and how that helps to explain their own individual behavior, how those behaviors come together to create system, social systems and larger systems in our world. And I think that's how psychologists typically think. Um, so for people who are really drawn to that lens, trying to understand their own minds, the minds of others, um, Sometimes it can be just an inescapable career path um, because it's, for some of us, it's so clearly um, endlessly fascinating. 
I want to talk about willpower because I was lucky enough to be in your class in the fall where we focused on willpower for the entire semester. You are the reason I went vegan-ish. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of willpower, vegan-ish. Yes, I, like, I love that. The ish gives me like a 10% wiggle room there. But yes, still there. But could we talk about, I guess, starting by defining willpower and what maybe you've discovered over the last year or two through the class and through your, your studies and research about willpower that's been surprising? Yeah. So willpower it's defined typically as like the self-control that can be used to do something um, that you might not feel like doing or to restrain impulses that you do feel like uh, to avoid immediate gratification in order to pursue like longer term goals or um, to move your behavior also in line with your higher order values. Um, it's, you know, it's choosing the future rather than now. Um, it's overriding your immediate impulses in order to pursue something that's important to you, but doesn't line up with those immediate impulses. And it's true that um, you were in my class. I was so lucky to have you as a student. And one of the things that I do really on the side is teach uh, at Harvard Extension School this class. And I called it the psychology of willpower rather than using one of many other possible words that relate to this sort of universe of, of terminology that's used to, um, to describe and study this area. Um, for example, a near synonym for willpower is self-control. I use the word willpower in the class because I think the connotations of it are a little bit more positive and that when people think about self-control, they often feel like punishing themselves for not using enough of it. Um, so in general, I, I think of willpower self-control as a skill that I have that everyone has, um, but that it's best not to rely on all of the time. Um, you know, some people think that they really lack it uh, or, or really just don't have it. That's hardly ever the case. Um, everyone has it. If you, if you didn't have any of it, um, imagine what your daily life would be like. But there's this tendency to really focus on the areas where it's lacking or where you didn't do the thing you intended to do or where you did something that you really meant not to do um, and not to give ourselves credit for the areas where we really are succeeding. Um, but that said, it is something that everyone pretty much wants more of. Like there's not anyone I meet, very rarely do I meet someone who's like, oh, you study self-control? I'm all set in that department. I'm good. No, usually people say, oh, do you need a research subject <laughs> for someone who's lacking self-control? Um, and it is extremely important. You know, it is something that predicts a whole host of outcomes in large scientific studies, including like physical health, mental health, um, financial health, crime. Um, and in a way, I think it's more important than ever because it really is um it's something that relates to your future and serving your future self. And now our lifespans, fortunately, are much longer than they ever were historically. So that means that we have a longer horizon to serve. Like we have a future self that's going to be hopefully much older than would have been the case for our ancestors. That means that we have loved ones and ourselves whose future selves we need to plan for and act in, in service of 
And meanwhile, we live in a time when like temptations are everywhere. The internet makes them constantly available. We're constantly getting like pinged with distractions. Um, it's easier than ever to find like unhealthy food. It's uh, often harder to get, for example, exercise. A lot of jobs involve sitting at your desk all day and um, all of these things conspire to make it harder than it may have once been to accomplish things that currently represent some of the biggest challenges people have in their own daily use of their willpower, their self-control. As far as the the class and like what has surprised me most about what I've learned teaching or what I've learned doing research, um, one of the biggest surprises that I've had about about self-control and willpower as I've researched it is really how complicated it is. I think when I started out, which was over a decade ago, um, researching this topic, I thought I knew what it was just implicitly. And um, it turns out that it's almost like love. Like it's so important. Everyone knows it's so important. So many different people are interested in it. And it's really slippery to define. And it's really difficult to measure, which is something that scientists really care about. It's, it's You can't study something until you can measure it. Um, so there have been numerous ways of defining it, of measuring it. Every subfield of the behavioral sciences is interested in it from some angle or another and has a different, termino, you know, different term for it, a, a different way of defining and measuring these kind of overlapping constructs. And there are components of self-control or impulsivity, it's its inverse, that relate to like not planning for, you know, how much do you plan versus not plan in your decision-making or perseverance? How much do you persevere through difficulty, through boredom in pursuing your goals? Or how much do you become rash when you're experiencing strong emotions in particular? Um, how much can you control your attention on purpose? These are all these different components that relate to self-control and impulsivity. So I was, I didn't realize when I started out how much this topic was going to defy simple explanation and um, clear uh, measurement. And so it's been something that it's like the more I look at it, the more complex it is. And um, that's why 10 years, well, I guess more than 10 years later, I am still equally as mystified by it um, as I was, maybe more than I was at the beginning. But a lot of us continue to study it because it's clearly extremely important and it's related to so many different important outcomes in mental health and also for for everyone across a whole host of, of areas of life. So you probably know this far better than I do. I've seen uh, in the world that tries to measure willpower, there's kind of been this argument going back and forth. People saying willpower is a muscle and it wears out over time versus people who've said, or supposedly debunked that or said, no, the studies that looked at that, you know, were flawed in some way. I like that you called it a skill because that leads me to believe that I can develop it. Um, but can you talk just a little bit about that aspect of willpower. Do we run out of willpower over the, the course of a few hours? Like, how does that all work? And what is the latest on that argument? Yeah, it is depletable. It's not depletable, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So you've certainly touched on a hot button issue 
um, where where psychologists have gone to Twitter and, and argued with each other quite a bit. Um, so there is a, a concept that was very, very popular in the psychological sciences called ego depletion. Um, uh, someone named Roy Baumeister was really at the helm of this research. And the idea is that, um, yes, as you said, that willpower is almost an analogous to a muscle, that it can be strengthened through repeated use over time, just like sort of weight training, but that in the short term, it can be fatigued and weakened and you can run out of capacity. Um, this was demonstrated through research studies where people were given two sequential tasks that tasked self-control and showed that people after they were, they had their self-control taxed in a subsequent task, they used less of it. Um, there have been a number of threats to this line of research. One was a major replication effort, which was really part of a broader replication effort in the behavioral sciences and really the sciences at large, um, where there have been in the there have always been a number of small studies um, where a really cool finding gets a lot of attention. And there's kind of less incentive for researchers and scientists to try to replicate or find that again in another sample of, of people and make sure it kind of holds up and that it continues to, to seem true um, across multiple studies. There's less incentive because those papers are harder to get published. It's harder to kind of build your name as a researcher doing replications. There's been some culture shifting around that, um, but after a couple of really high profile findings failed to replicate uh, in scientific studies, there's been a big push to replicate more and more. Part of that push involved a multi-site replication effort to try to find this ego depletion effect. It failed ultimately. So that effect did not replicate in this large multi-site um, trial. There were a couple of problems with interpreting that. For one, I guess a major problem was that the version of the task that was used wasn't the exact same one that had been used in the majority of the prior research on ego depletion. It's also just very hard to know, I think, what to do with the, you know, this wasn't a, an example of a finding that had just been found once in one high profile research study and then failed to replicate. It was one that was found in dozens, maybe hundreds of, of research studies, and then it wasn't replicated in this one. I think a lot of us don't know how to think about this, but what I will say is my opinion on it is that there's enough evidence to suggest that under some conditions, people after the use of some kind of self-control show potential changes in their willingness or ability to use more of it, at least in many studies. So some people after this failed replication effort who had been ego depletion researchers kind of like jumped ship and didn't want to study it anymore, kind of got a bad name. And um, I'm hoping that more and more people will kind of turn back to that topic and help us understand what really is going on. Um, it seems pretty clear from some subsequent research that it's definitely not that you just totally lose your ability. Like it's not as though, um, You've, you've strained your muscles and they cannot possibly work again after you've just used them. It may more be that there's motivational shift um, after you've just exerted yourself. I know this happens to me, like after I do a big workout or something, I'm like, great, I don't need to do anything else major for a couple of hours. I've already done something good. Um, but if something really important were to come up, 
I might kick it back into gear. There's some research showing that that is how it can work, um, that when the stakes are high enough or if something valued comes up, people can access that self-control again. But at the moment, this research area, um, I think, is, is under scrutiny, but is also um, one where we really just need a lot more information. I don't think it's a clear-cut place right now to know whether there is ego depletion or not. Definitely feels true, but I know a lot of things that feel true aren't true. So, yeah. It does feel true. Yeah, no, and I think this is part of what's fun about psychology is that everyone can have a take on it. Like, I do not have any intuitions about my biochemistry. I don't know about you, but I can't just introspect and say like, you know what, that theory really feels right or that feels wrong. But in psychology, everybody can. And if something feels really right, um, in a way that is helpful information, if, if enough people um, find that pattern of behavior on their own. Um, but that's why though, beyond that kind of introspection, it, it is really important that we have behavioral experiments that show even if people kind of think that this is how they function, when we put them in the relevant conditions, is this how they function? So we spent the semester talking through different tools and ways we can strengthen this area and really focus on our own willpower. I know it's a lot to cover in this short conversation, but are there any go-to tools that you recommend, uh, especially for creative-minded entrepreneurs that are listening and are like, I'm struggling with this, but I don't even know what to do? Yes, definitely. Um, and I will come out and say that just because I study this, teach it, and focus on it with so much of my life does not mean that I don't struggle with it myself. Um, I absolutely struggle every single day with doing the things that I meant to do. Um, and I have lapses. And um, I think as might not surprise you from having taken my class, probably my biggest message is to have self-compassion as you pursue your goals. Um, from my perspective, the number one reason that people can just completely quit on their goals is a feeling of shame. Um, and this is really to, just easy to fall into this trap, to feel like the fact that I failed today or yesterday means that this is hopeless and pointless. Um, and this can start kind of a shame spiral and that's really not a great place to get going again. Um, it's really important to see lapses as information. Um, if there was a lapse, that means it's time for me to revisit my goal. It's time for me to revisit my strategies. Um, and the only way to kind of make space for yourself to do that rather than getting caught in self-criticism is to have compassion for yourself, just like you would probably for any friend or family member, other loved one who had a lapse in their goal pursuit. When someone else comes to you and says, oh, I've been falling behind with my with this big project that I'm working on. I I thought that last week I would have hit this particular goal. I would have finished this chapter. I would have finished this thing. And when you hear that, it's unlikely that you judge them as, okay, you're never going to succeed. Then you might as well just quit. Um, and so to have the same kind of stance toward yourself that you would toward a loved one and think through, okay, well, what, what went wrong? what came up um, and let's try to problem solve. The only way to do that is to give yourself that compassion first. Um, there are other major strategies though. 
the first thing that you start with is the goal itself. And actually lately, and Kira, you don't know about this because this is something I've been workshopping more recently. Lately, I've been focusing on starting out even before setting a new goal with a goal audit or a goal clean out or cleanse. <laughs> Look through your life. What are the goals that whether you've explicitly written them down or thought of them as goals or not, whether they're just kind of implicitly goals in the sense that you're pursuing them, even though you haven't maybe identified them as goals, what are the goals you have in different areas of life, professional goals, but also personal goals, you know, health related, family related, social, what are the things that you're working toward? Do they all make sense for you still? Are they all really still important? Are they worth the time and energy you're giving them? Are they worth more time and energy? Um, sometimes we keep pursuing goals just kind of because it's really hard to disengage from goals, especially for people who are kind of more type A, um, which, you know, that's not really a strictly psychologically, scientifically sound term, but I'll use it anyway. Um, you know, people who are really not okay with the feeling of failure, disengaging from a goal can feel like failure. But in fact, I think quitting can be the most valuable, important thing you can do if that goal really doesn't serve you anymore. Um, the worst place you can be in is feeling still very committed and attached to the goal, but not even working toward it anymore. That is a really common place to find oneself in. Um, you know, like I really, you know, still want to lose these 10 pounds. I really want to write a book, but doing nothing for that and just feeling bad about it every single day. That's the worst. Much better to disengage from the goal entirely. Um, or there are a whole bunch of other options, including deciding, is there another alternate goal that meets the same kind of overall reason I had that goal in the first place? Like if I thought I wanted to write a book and that's just kind of not realistic in my life right now, like I have a young kid or I have you know, these other competing priorities and um, I don't seem to really feel motivated to do it. And, you know, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Um, is there some, why did I want that in the first place? What about that was important to me? There could be a whole host of things, or let's say I wanted to be a, a rock star. Why did I want to be a rock star? Was it because I wanted to be part of the music industry? Was it because I wanted like fame? Was it because I want um, to, I just love singing so much? Whatever the, the overall reason is for your goal, your kind of your why, you could potentially find another avenue to, that meets that same need or that same drive that's more achievable. So I would sort of start out with a clean out of your goals, look through them, write them down, uh, and decide whether they're all still important. Then when you're really bolstering a goal, I would really only pick one or two at a time. So one of the pitfalls of like New Year's resolutions is setting a whole bunch of goals at once. And that is just a recipe for disaster because there's really only so much we can expect of ourselves every single day and radical transformations don't happen that quickly. Um, I've been guilty of this myself. I'll be like, you know, I'll download a new habit app or something and I'm like, I'm going to be a whole new person. This is the new me. I'm never going back. Like this is it forever. And, you know, one week later, it's done for. Um, so setting yourself up for success means kind of thinking small and realistically and one thing at a time. So um, after you've kind of looked through your goals, pick one or maybe two 
that are really important for you right now. Then you need to be very, very specific and concrete about what exactly the goal is. Um, I recommend using something like a SMART goal system or WOOP, W-O-O-P, to try to clarify why you're doing it, what you're doing, exactly what the goal is, make sure it's measurable so that you know whether you've accomplished it or not. Um, That's often people find themselves feeling like they have done nothing, they've failed, but they actually have been working toward their goal and they just never really clarified what constituted success. And so that could lead to a constant feeling of failure. Conversely, it can lead to constantly feeling like you've done enough Um, without really hitting any kind of target. Um, And then I think most importantly that it's, you know, realistic and achievable. Um, And so, you know, start small. Like if you want to start building a new skill in the workplace, for example, don't start off by saying you're going to do this for four hours every day or you're going to, you know, seven days a week um, do anything (laughs) really. Uh, start with something achievable so that you are not guaranteed to slip up within your first couple of weeks and let it go entirely. Give yourself a chance to build a habit so that it becomes more routinized and you don't have to keep trying so hard to do it over time. Um, those are the two, I think, key things to start with when just getting started. Um, part of goal setting, I will note, Um, can include implementation intentions. This is one strategy that has a lot of evidence behind it that I do definitely use personally since I learned about it years ago um, that helps you to kind of take the guesswork out of when, where, and how you're actually going to um, do the thing that you've planned to do. And an implementation intention is an if-then or when-then plan for your goal. So it's not just that specific. Um, Often when I have students trying to write implementation intentions, the first impulse is just to get very specific with what you're going to do. But it's not just that it's specific. It's that it's cued by something in the environment. So it's not just what you're going to do, but when you're going to do it, meaning what is going to happen in your environment that triggers you to do it. The classic example is for someone who wants to like improve their heart health and um, move around more, exercise more, to say, not just say, okay, I'm going to take the stairs more and not the elevator as much. Specifically, what is going to cue you that it's time to take the stairs? So when I see an elevator, (laughs) I'm going to look for the stairs. Um, When I need to go to another floor, I'm going to find the stairs. And that kind of helps you to create the cues in your mind that you are ready for. And you know that this is the time to do this thing I had planned. It's not vague. You can also set an alarm for yourself. When this particular alarm goes off, I'm going to do this. Um, That just taking any of the guesswork or any of the wiggle room out of your plan can just relieve the pressure off of future you who's feeling kind of stressed and overwhelmed and isn't sure if you should really do that thing right now or these 10 other things that have stacked up on your desk. Well, you already made the decision that this is when it's going to happen and treat it as just as set in stone as, say, a meeting with somebody else that you can't cancel. Um, Those are some helpful things for the beginning of the process. 
All right, let's jump in here. So lots of stuff to talk about here, Kira. Uh, I mean, immediately I'm jumping to willpower. Uh, this is a huge thing that we all deal with at some level. Sometimes it's work-related, sometimes it's personal. And I, I mean, for me, you know, as I think about this, there are some things that come really easy to me that I know other people struggle with willpower. I mentioned exercising during, you know, during the, our interview. It's like I, I am actually really good at getting up and exercising, you know, those kinds of things. But then there are other things that sometimes it's just so hard to get into them. And I just really appreciated what Becky had to share about the different kinds of approaches that we have here and, you know, how we develop the skill for ourselves. Yeah. And there's so many tools you can use. And I think that for me was the benefit of taking her class was just knowing that I can pull from all these different places um, when I'm working towards a big goal and I'm feeling stuck, um, that you don't just have to power through it alone. There are tools you can access. And so we were able to talk about a, a couple of them with Becky. Uh, the most important one is self-compassion, which she mentioned a couple of times. And I feel like it's really easy to overlook it because it feels warm and fuzzy. Uh, but I know for me, making significant changes over the last year uh, especially going vegan and even attempting to train for an Ironman, which, you know, I'm still in the process of doing that. Self-compassion has been the tool I've used the most because otherwise I would have given up already, um, especially during those moments of failure and moments where I fall apart and I'm, I'm devouring the cheese or I'm missing multiple trainings in a row because I'm preoccupied with work or something else. And it's really easy to just give up and feel that shame. But because I've been kind of able to just pull in that self-compassion and just kind of ask those questions um, and really put on a, you know, a scientific hat to say, well, this is interesting data. What can I learn from this? So I was really tired when I devoured the cheese late at night because I woke up at 4 a.m. that day and I was exhausted by 7 p.m. So what can I learn from that that I can adjust moving forward? And I love that approach um, that she takes and she's taught me because it makes it feel like it's it gives you hope, right? And it, it also gives you a tool to readjust and work towards the goal without just saying, this is never going to work. I can't do this. Yeah. And there's a balance here too, right? I mean, it's just like with willpower, you know, sometimes we're really good at it. Sometimes we're not. It's the same thing with self-compassion. You know, they're, they're, if, if you give too much self-compassion, you let yourself off the hook. Now, you know, you've kind of counteracted the positives from willpower. So it, it's a balance. And yes, when we fail, we need to be self-compassionate and not make things worse. And, but at the same time, uh, we also need to hold ourselves accountable and make the ne you know, take the next step. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not judging you for eating cheese. I love, I love cheese. Uh, but if I had eaten a big chunk of cheese, maybe it's like, okay, that's, that's my, you know, my cheese for the week or what, you know, like not letting that stop me from, from succeeding um, as, as I balance those two things out. And I mean, part of what Becky was saying is there is no settled science here. I'm not sure there's settled science anywhere, but here, you know, where so many people talk about, you know, willpower and the things that we absolutely know about are, are, and the scientific studies. And then, you know, Becky was sharing some of that hasn't been replicated and some of it, you know, is just how we feel about how we feel and not easily measured. And I, I think it's nice to be aware of that uh, so that, you know, we're not 
like you said, beating ourselves up about it when, you know, willpower is a little harder to muster than other times. Yeah. And in general, I have a feeling that most people listening to this show are overly critical and less self-compassionate. So I think I agree with you that we can go overboard with self-compassion. And maybe I'll get to the point where I'm leaning too far in that direction. And it's like, no, we really need to get get a hold of this and take control and not devour cheese five times a week if you say you really want to be a vegan. Um, but again, I think for the people listening to this show, I know we have that critical inner voice. And so I think we can probably lean into self-compassion and still be okay. I don't think any of us are probably hanging on too tightly to self-compassion in our day-to-day. And Becky mentioned one of those other tools, you know, for making sure that we're able to accomplish this stuff, the goal audit, the goal cleanse. I really like this idea because I think it's very easy, especially when we're in business for ourselves to have lots of goals, lots of things that we want to accomplish. Yesterday I was talking with a copywriter and she was struggling to balance these three priorities that she has in her life. And so we were talking through the tools in order to do that. But I I think oftentimes we set, you know, five, six, 10 goals or New Year's resolutions or whatever. And, you know, it's it's worthwhile to take a step back and say, you know, are these goals for me? Are they for someone else? Do these goals serve me in the ways that I want them to? And get rid of stuff that doesn't actually make sense in our lives. Yeah, I love, I love that concept too. That really stood out to me. Just um, putting stuff on the back burner too. I think the nice part is it doesn't mean that it will never be a priority, but it just isn't a priority right now. And I think that that's something we've done with a lot of our think tank members as we've helped them set goals and create a plan, you know, really more of a micro plan for three to six months out. And a lot of that exercise is around what can we put on the back burner that is not going to move the needle right now and is not going to support your aspiration. Uh, It's still important to you, but we don't have to focus on it right now. And it's just really hard for all of us to do it. And it, it is hard to let go of some of those goals, you know, um, you know, it's, it's like, Hey, I've been wanting to do this, you know, my entire life, or, you know, I know a lot, we, we talk about writing our books. We've talked about that a lot recently. I'm not letting go of that goal. It's it me, me, I think yeah. in a lot of ways, but there are a lot of people out there who think, yeah, I would like to write a book or maybe more realistically, I would like to have written a book or have a book that I had written because the process is actually hard. And, and that goal is just not serving them. They're, they're really not that interested in, in making it. Or, you know, maybe, maybe there's some, you know, other goals related to family or travel or, or work or, or income goals or whatever. And it's hard to let that stuff go. And I, I just, again, appreciated what Becky was sharing about, you know, how sometimes doing that is the very first step in accomplishing better things for ourselves. We also talked about the juxta, the interesting juxtaposition between um, living longer lives. And this is, this is great that our lives are extending over time. Um, and, and, but also, you know, holding that thought with the other challenge around, distractions and social media and our iPhones and just all the day-to-day overwhelm and distractions that actually prevent us from doing the things we want to do in the present moment that could hold us back from hitting the long-term goals. And so I just liked that she mentioned that because to me that is so important. Um, I really love thinking about my what I'm going to be doing when I'm 100 years old and um, 
knowing that that may not ever happen, but I like to plan for it and think about, well, what am I going to be doing in my career? What do I want my relationships to look like? And thinking long-term and thinking about my future self and building that connection with my future self. And she mentioned there are different tools you can use, very simple tools like writing to your future self or writing in the voice of your future self to your present day self. And so we can do that more frequently to really build that connection and, um, and help us get out of our own way in the day to day. I mean, I a hundred percent agree, you know, as far as like looking at the future and really keeping that in mind as, as we're trying to figure out, okay, you know, what is, what is it that I want from this life that I'm living today? And that juxtaposition is not an easy thing to resolve. Yeah, and we do dive deeper into that that part of the conversation in the second half of the conversation. We also talked about implementation intentions, which is another tool you can use, and that is really helpful. I use that as well. Um, again, going back to the vegan example, if you are going out to a restaurant, you can set an, set an implementation intention. You know, when I sit down at the table at the restaurant and the server comes over, I'll pull the server to the side and ask for any vegan options on the menu before even looking at the menu, right? And before even getting distracted by all the yummy other options out there, that's an implementation intention because you're looking into the future, foreseeing a potential obstacle, and you have a plan to work around that obstacle. And so I love that idea. It's something that I want to play around with more um, because it does it does work. Yeah, I, again, mentioned that I'm pretty good at the exercise thing, and it's because of the implementation intention that I am, because every night before I go to bed, the running shoes, the running clothes are set out. Uh, I don't do that in the morning, mostly not, I, I wasn't doing it necessarily to give myself that intention. It's mostly because banging around in the closet would wake up my wife, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. So, you know, I moved that stuff into the other room, but the fact that I do it, means that it's all ready to go. And all I have to do is roll out of bed, pull on the clothes and, and hit the streets. And it is amazing how just li a little obstacle, like potentially waking up you know, your wife, which could turn into a big obstacle, uh, depending on how she reacts to it. But it seems so subtle, but that is something that would stop me in my tracks and probably prevent me from getting up early or running if I know I'm going to wake up, you know, wake up someone and deal with that, you know, deal with the damage caused by that. It's like, it's not worth it. So all of this is just planning for the future, really being proactive and thinking ahead to avoid those obstacles. Yeah. The goal setting framework that Rebecca mentioned, uh, I think it's called WOOF. Um, you know, it's wish, or wish, outcome, obstacle, plan, WOOF. Yep. Yeah. And um, that, the whole idea there is that, okay, you've got the thing, you've got your intention, the thing you want to do, and then you have the outcome that you're picturing, but you're also picturing all the obstacles that will get in your way for accomplishing that stuff and creating a plan for it. And so uh, I actually like that framework better than SMART goals, uh, you know, because it does anticipate what's going to keep you from reaching your goals rather than just saying, oh, well, it's you know, timely and measurable. All right, well, let's get back to our interview with Becky, where she gives us some much needed tools, uh, tools that Rob and I need to use to avoid procrastination or at least decrease procrastination in our lives. Yeah, as you, as you talk through it, these feel like the big things. You get the right goals uh, set up so that you, you, you know, have that motivation. Um, and then like real life 
happens. You know, maybe I have this goal to get up at 5 a.m. and write for a couple of hours before the kids get up or whatever. Only at 5 a.m. I'm really, really tired. Uh, you know, maybe I didn't get to bed on time or maybe I'm just old and I'm tired all the time, I, you know, whatever the reason. Are there are there specific things in the moment that we can do to help turn up the willpower that we have? And obviously, you know, writing in the morning is one, but, you know, by the third time I've looked at the chocolate chip cookie and I know I can remove the chocolate chip cookie from my house, but my kids might bring it, right? So like, maybe that's not realistic. So some of those in the moment things, what else can we do to, to build that uh, willpower skill? Yeah. So what you're talking about to some degree is what I kind of call gripping the table self-control. Um, this is That's exactly what it is. Yes. 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 Like, no matter what you've done in advance, and I really do advocate doing as much as possible in advance. These are called proactive strategies. Just like you said, don't have the cookies in your house if you don't want to be eating them. Set your environment up to make it as easy and frictionless as possible for you to do those things that you intend to do and avoid the things you intend to avoid. Um, you know, I often say, like, if you really don't want to eat pizza, is it is the best idea to go to a, you know, to a pizza dinner with your friends and try to order salad? No, that's not, you know, that's really taxing your self-control. Um, but, you know, best intentions aside, everyone ends up in these moments in the moment where you just need to use gripping the table self-control. Um, and what are some ways to do that? Well, one way is to take a deep breath. That's where you start with. If you can build space, tell yourself it's not that you're necessarily going to make the decision that serves future you. You're just going to give yourself a pause before you decide. If you can at least give yourself a pause, that's a chance to change your decision. So then you're not necessarily going to immediately act out your impulses. You're at least taking a breath and seeing whether that is, you know, whether, okay, you know what? I am. I'm going to eat the cookie. Uh, I'm going to skip writing this morning. We're only human. This is going to happen sometimes. Um, or whether you can remind yourself in that moment for the reasons why that is not part of your plan for the day. So in that breath moment, the more that you can connect to the imagined future goal and the value that leads you there, Close your eyes and picture the future outcome that you're really working toward. Remind yourself that this is possible. And remind yourself that every single decision does count. So there is this weird tendency that we all have that um, there is some interesting research on to think like, well, this one doesn't really count. And next time I'm in this exact decision point is when it really counts. So like, you know, this is whatever, but starting later today, for sure, I'm going to be on board or starting tomorrow. Try to remind yourself in this moment, this little bit of space you give yourself, that every single decision you make adds up to account for whether you achieve this goal. And if it really is important for you, this is a great time to show that to yourself, to give this gift to your future self and try to connect with that goal. It does not always work. And, you know, people are much, much better at the proactive strategies than at the gripping the table self-control. So there are always ways to do more proactive things than you're currently doing. Um, and that is where I would tend to advise starting, um, is set up your environment for success. Think of yourself like a marketing executive 
and you're also the the, the target uh, client base. You know, you want to guide yourself toward making the goal the decision. You know, you want to uh, increase friction when it comes to undesired behaviors and decrease friction when it comes to desired behaviors. Look around your home. Look around. Look at your calendar. You know, is 5 a.m.? I mean, maybe for you. I am so nocturnal that 5 a.m., waking up and doing something at 5 a.m. is just an unrealistic um, plan for me. So I never create a new goal for myself that involves doing something at 5 in the morning unless the idea is that I'd still be awake. Um, But there's, you have to be um, realistic with yourself. And when you find yourself in one of those in the moment, gripping the table uh, uh, dilemmas, get through it as best you can. I definitely recommend taking the pause, the breath, connecting with the goal, reminding yourself that this decision counts. Um, But I also think that's data. How can I avoid being in this exact dilemma in the future? If I really don't feel like doing this at five in the morning, will I be a little bit more likely to do it, say, after the kids go to bed than before I have to go to work? just be honest with yourself. You mentioned your future self a couple of times, and what it was one of my favorite challenges that we did together was the future self activity. Can you just t- uh, share a little bit about that study and how we can work through that activity? Yeah, there's a really cool kind of line of studies showing that people, when they are shown or in some way exposed to their future self and led to feel more connected to that future self, make decisions that serve that future self better. So I'll back up and say, well, on the one hand, it's kind of obvious to to many that like you're the same person over time. First of all, some philosophers actually argue with this and say, Um, that you're not, you're not the same person throughout your whole life. You know, every cell in your body is, you know, potentially different by the time you're 90 than when you were born. Um, And you change so much. So on what grounds would you say that you're the same person throughout your entire life? And it might make more sense, argue some philosophers to say that you have sort of overlapping selves, um, that the, you know, the five-year-old you is, um, overlapping, but somewhat different from the 15-year-old you who is overlapping and somewhat different from the 30-year-old you. And that by the time you're through the lifespan, there might be very little overlap, you know, between who you were when you were five and and who you are now. Now, I, I don't know that that's true and I won't weigh in on that. But what is true is that people kind of implicitly, and by implicitly, I mean, even if they don't think that or wouldn't say that they think that, that their behavior shows it. In that sense, people implicitly act like they aren't necessarily the same person as their future self, especially the farther into the future we go. Um, so there have been some some cool studies on this. One example is um, close your eyes and picture yourself um, at a dinner party tonight. People are more likely, and if you've just done this, people are more likely to picture themselves at the dinner party through their own eyes like seeing people around them at the table. Now close your eyes and picture yourself at a dinner party, let's say 30 years from now. In this case, people are more likely to see themselves kind of like in a dream or from a bird's eye view or in a movie, um, to see another person 
rather than seeing out of those same eyes. And there have been a whole lot of other lines of evidence that we can feel pretty much like our future self is a completely different person. That's kind of a problem if we're working toward these major life goals that are really in service of that person. It can feel like you're sacrificing for somebody else who isn't even you, which of course it's, we do that all the time too. And, and um, I'm not saying that we're all so selfish that we won't sacrifice for someone else, but the trade-off can feel kind of different than it might feel if you really genuinely felt connected to that other person. Um, and so this matters a little bit less for decisions about like now versus tonight. For example, if I study now, then I can really go out tonight versus if I watch Netflix now, then I'll have to study later. Um, this is more relevant for longer term thinking, which many of us have very valued goals, professional and personal, that are really in service of something that's a year or more down the line. Um, so there have been these interesting studies showing that actually even just showing people like their own face, but aged in an avatar can get people to make decisions that serve their future self and um, prioritize the future more than they would otherwise. Um, seeing an aged face isn't fun. I do have students in my class try this out if they're willing to, to use kind of a face aging app or website to see like what their face would look like, you know, 30 years from now and see what that feels like. Nobody likes doing, well, very few people like doing that. Um, but instead I focus more on other exercises to connect with your future self. For example, um, can you take 10 minutes today and write a letter to your future self? Um, what are you hoping to say to that person? What are you hoping to have accomplished for that person? And try to forge a sense of connection with that person and feel closer. Can you take 10 minutes and picture what you think or hope your life will be like in 10 years, in 20 years? Write it down, think about it in detail. Um, any way of kind of forging a stronger sense of connection to that person so it doesn't feel like it's somebody else can facilitate um, acting in service of that person, meaning per, you know, kind of sacrificing today to some extent. And do I think that we should 100% sacrifice in the now just for the future? Absolutely not. But we need to do some of that. Um, you know, so if you have a big goal you're working on, let's say you're starting your own company, right now it could be really tough, but you're hoping in five years it's smooth. Connecting with that vision and that person that you're doing this for um, can really help you fight through the um, the things you want to avoid right now and focus on them. Can we talk a bit about procrastination? I think yeah. uh, I have a superpower of procrastination. It's one of my um, strengths. <laughs> um, and it's frustrating at times. Uh, I realize, I, I know, you know, from thinking about it, sometimes I procrastinate things because I just, I don't like the task or whatever. But can you talk a little bit about procrastination and how it relates to willpower? And especially, you know, if there's stuff that's got to get done, how do we overcome that procrastination? Yeah. Definitely. So how much would you say you procrastinate? 
Well, I mean, it depends on the area, but I mean, I, I, I push things off towards deadlines all the time. You know, I'd rather do other things first, whatever, but I, but then I don't, I don't procrastinate my exercise. I get up and I do that every morning. Right. So, uh, I'm good at some things and I'm better at procrastinating other things. And then when you have those deadlines, do you end up kind of working in a frenzy right before the deadline? Not necessarily a frenzy, but it definitely energizes me to get stuff done towards the deadline. Yeah. You get stuff uh, done. You get stuff done, Rob. That's clear. Yeah. Um, so most people procrastinate. Um, there are different estimates of, you know, sort of the proportion of people who procrastinate. A lot of studies looking at estimates of the number have been in students, but People don't stop procrastinating after their students. Um, most people procrastinate. What does that mean? It means delaying an intended course of action. Like you're supposed to begin or complete a task and you delay it. And typically it means delaying it either needlessly or irrationally. For example, there are all kinds of delay that are not procrastination. Let's say I intended to work on something today, but had a medical emergency or my son did. Yeah, put off the work thing, right? There are things that come up that force you to delay. Um, that's a really obvious example. The trouble is that it can be way less obvious. Oh, shoot, you know, I forgot to like organize the mail. Uh, I forgot that I meant to kind of, you know, clean up the kitchen. Um, well, those are not, those are not medical emergencies. Um, there is a really funny old essay that I absolutely love by Robert Benchley called How to Get Things Done. That's um, all about how when he has a really big, important thing to do, suddenly everything else would get accomplished. And so how to get things done, have something else big and important that you need to do. And suddenly everything else you've been putting off will come into focus. Um, this is a widely experienced phenomenon. Now, some people argue that there are some forms of procrastination that aren't bad or that may even be good. Um, there's this concept called active procrastination that the idea is that maybe you want to delay your start so that you, first of all, spend overall less time on it. Now this, I can understand this. I think however much time I give myself to get ready to go out, I will take that amount of time. If I have four hours, I'll take four hours. Do I want to spend four hours that way? No, that's not a good use of my time on this earth. So um, sometimes I do leave myself just 20 minutes so that that's what I take. Um, that's a form of procrastination that could be beneficial. Delay the start intentionally so that you don't waste more time than you actually need on the task. Um, another form that some people argue is that if you really like that kind of energy and rush that can come from doing something up against a deadline, that might, you know, you might intentionally delay to access that. Some people feel like they really only have their best ideas under that, those conditions, and that's what they want. And, you know, to each their own 100%. But I think in general, there's more evidence that people can kind of use those kinds of beliefs um, to justify procrastination that ultimately does interfere with their lives, including their sleep. Like, you know, often in these dashes to get things done right before a deadline, we lose sleep, we we stop eating as healthily, we our families have to kind of pick up the slack. And um, so even if it could feel like a rush in the moment, it might come with some other costs. Um, in general, 
we give ourselves uh, a lot of excuses for delaying things that either are um, effortful or, or, or anxiety provoking. So what are some strategies to stop this? Uh, they're very similar to the strategies I mentioned earlier. One thing is proactive, <laughs> proactive strategies. Schedule things in your calendar for specific times, maybe even specific locations. So let's say there's a work project that you've been procrastinating on. Set a series of meetings with yourself to do this task, maybe not at your regular office or your home office, for example. You're going to go to a specific location. You're going to a coffee shop. You're going to work on it during that time. Um, if you can, enlist a buddy uh, for accountability. That can be really helpful. If you have someone else who's working on another work goal and you set up a meeting to just co-work on this at the same time, you will be less likely to blow it off than if nobody's going to even know about it. Um, those are some strategies you can set up in advance. In the moment, when you're feeling like not doing the thing that you'd plan to do, you can try to reconnect with your reasons for doing the thing in the first place and what the outcome is going to be if you actually complete it. But another major strategy when it comes to procrastination is just do it whether you feel like it or not. One major thing that happens when people procrastinate is they, they feel like they need to wait to be in like this. And I, I this happens to me too. I feel like you need to wait to be in this specific headspace like, well, I'm not feeling quite right right now. Maybe I need a snack. Maybe I need a nap. You know, I feel like I really need to be in the zone for this particular task. Those are the tasks that are the most pernicious for procrastination. Something like, you know, doing the dishes or anything kind of mindless, we don't tend to procrastinate as much. It's things where you feel like you need to be in a particular kind of headspace. Try to discard the idea that you need to be in a particular headspace to make some progress toward a task. Even if you just spend that amount of time, you know, writing something that's terrible that you can edit later, that is still working toward the goal and just get going with it, whether, you know, whether you're in that right headspace or not. Okay. Now we're not going to procrastinate. Rob and I are not going to procrastinate moving forward. Getting stuff done. <laughs> okay. So this might be an unfair question as a final question, because I know um, I'm watching the time and I have 20 more questions for you, but I want to be uh, aware of the time. In a minute or two, can you summarize State of the Union on mental health and where it is today in the U.S.? Just to sum it up, just to give us a glimpse into what's happening right now. State of the Union for mental health. Yeah, that is difficult to summarize. And to you know, in like 30 seconds. No, I think um, it's almost a like a tale of two cities right now for mental health. Um, in some ways, it's really the best of times because mental health is getting more positive attention and awareness, more efforts to destigmatize um, uh, mental health issues and um, uh, accessing treatment than maybe ever before. So people are talking much more publicly about seeking therapy. Uh, celebrities are out there talking about it. More and more people want to work on themselves. Um, and more and more people are out there talking about their own mental health struggles. Um, there's wide recognition of the importance of this area. Um, there also are some new efforts to improve accessibility, whereas accessibility has been uh, one of the biggest barriers in mental health care, still is. Um, 
In other words, even if someone wants to receive care, um, can they, can they, can they find it? Is there someone in their area who offers appropriate care? Um, is there a way that they can get themselves to the office? Do they have insurance? Does that insurance cover this service? Um, and do people even, are people even willing to access it or is stigma too much of a barrier? Do they not have the time in their schedule? All these kinds of things. There is some movement here that's really exciting. A lot of it spurred by the pandemic because that was kind of this push that the field it turned out really needed to allow uh, old rules about what psychotherapy needed to look like to go out the window. It needed to be in a specific kind of room for a specific amount of time with nobody else around and all these rules. But when push came to shove and people needed mental health care and we couldn't go meet each other in rooms for 50 minutes, the field flexed on it and it has been amazing and it has sustained. So even just the fact that there are more online options for mental health care has made it so much more accessible for so many more people, you know, including just people with busy jobs or just the added time of driving to and from the office might make it, you know, might remove your access <laughs> if you really can't take that extra hour of the commute. Um, on the other hand, it's the worst of times because people's mental health is, uh, is really struggling, especially teens. It's a really difficult time for a lot of folks. Um, and so while there are, there's sort of more discussion about resources, there's, um, you know, and people are more open about their, about their mental health and mental illness, it does seem like a really challenging time. Um, and again, especially among teens, there have been real rises in depression and suicide, um, suicidal thoughts. And it's a time that um, we really need to figure out what is going on for people. Why are some difficulties and struggles worsening? And what can we do about it beyond the changes that have already been made? Um, so, so, and while there is sort of more access in a sense, like more things online, we are also, there's also more demand. <laughs> more and more people want therapy and there are not enough clinicians to go around. We really need more people to go into the field and become clinicians um, and, and make themselves available to work hopefully with a wide range of, of people. Um, and so it's an exciting time. I think there will be more positive change to come. Yeah, so I, I was gonna wrap, but so that we don't end on a, a negative note, just really quick, if somebody's struggling with you know, feeling down, you know, depression. I know you specialize in suicide uh, prevention and those kinds of things as well. Just a couple of simple things that we can do just to, I'm not talking about therapy or anything, you know, um, at that level, but just to impact our own mental health for the day. What are some small things that we can do to uh, pick me ups? Yeah, it's a great question. Well, first of all, I'll say that if you're struggling in a more of a crisis way or do want care, I would recommend calling 980, which is a new nationally available phone number to access care. Um, but smaller things. Um, first of all, I think prioritize your sleep. Um, give yourself permission to go to sleep when you're tired at night. This can do wonders for how you feel the next day. Sleep is a big mystery. We don't really understand exactly why it seems to matter so much. It matters a ton for self-control, but also for mood and stress and overall well-being. Um, 
if there's one little tip that I would give everyone to try if you haven't, it's to get a sleep mask. It's the easiest possible intervention. It can cost just a dollar to get a sleep mask. And we're very sensitive to light more than you realize. And there's ambient light at night for everybody now. So I would get a sleep mask, prioritize your sleep, get those Zs. That will really help. Um, another thing, uh, my biggest thing is self-compassion. So I think regardless of whether it's for your self-control or for your mood or for your well-being, set five minutes to give yourself some kudos and some forgiveness for the things that aren't going your way right now. Um, we need to be our own friends here and talk to ourselves like we would talk to others who we love. So um, take a moment to maybe even meditate or take some deep breaths while thinking about what you love about yourself, what you're proud of, what you have accomplished in the past day, month, year. Um, there's probably a lot more than you were thinking about before. Um, there's also regular straight up mindfulness meditation, which is something that I really love and that I do recommend for folks, um, especially if you're feeling kind of overwhelmed, at loose ends, kind of can't catch your breath or get your mind straight. Five minutes of a breathing meditation um, or a body scan can be really centering. Awesome. Thank you, Becky. Yeah. So Becky, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or just learn more about your research, um, is there anywhere they can go to connect? Yeah, you can find me uh, my website, RebeccaFortgang.com, um, or you can find me on Twitter at BeckyFortgang. Um, those are probably the two best ways to get in touch with me. And my website has my email address too. Fantastic. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for giving us your time oh and for being such a great professor. Thank you so much for being such a wonderful student and for inviting me. This was a really fun experience and I love your podcast. That's the end of our interview with uh, Dr. Rebecca Fortgang. Let's get into just a couple of more takeaways before we go. Kira, what jumped out to you from this second half of our discussion? I mean, so much. Um, the idea around every single decision adds up and counts. Little things matter. I think that's one I really struggle with because I tend to be someone who gravitates towards extremes. And so it's either like, you know, I'm running an Ironman or I'm doing nothing. <laughs> or it's like in the training process, it's like I'm either running for three hours or if I can't do that, I'm going to sit on the couch and, and watch a show. And so for me, this is just an ongoing struggle, but just that reminder that every decision along the way, whether it's a small decision or not, does make a difference. And, you know, going for a 10 minute walk is actually working towards your goal, even if it's not running for three or four hours. And so that's just something I continue to wrestle with. But I love that she reminded us that we can't let ourselves off the hook and say, well, this time it doesn't matter. Today, it doesn't matter if I let it go. Um, or if I don't do the thing, um, but it does matter. Yeah, that's where sometimes we're a little too self-compassionate. Yes, like, yeah. yeah it's, it's not, I'm okay. I'm okay eating the entire pan of brownies, which I'm, <laughs> that's not uh, hypothetical. <laughs> it has happened in the Marshall Room several times. It has not happened recently, though. You haven't done that in a while. Yeah, that's true. It's been a, it's been a little while. But you know, speaking of that kind of stuff, you know, there are definitely 
times when our self-control is the gripping the table kind of self-control. You know, uh, dieting is one of those, you know, where you have to, you have to be comfortable being hungry. And that discomfort means that sometimes you are gripping the table saying no to the pan of brownies, right? Or, um, you know, in your business, you, you've set an intention to work with better paying clients, bigger clients, and then the client that's not the perfect fit comes in and, it takes some gripping of the table to say no to, you know, that lower paying client that's going to take up the time or, you know, is wrong for all the right reasons, or, but you still, you know, you want to either help them or you need the money or whatever. And so, so much of what we do is, is that you just got to grin and get through it. And I, I love that description because I immediately relate to gripping the table for a lot of the things that uh, I work through. Now I want some brownies. <laughs> Stop mentioning the brownies. Um, we also talked about procrastination. And again, this is something that I think, no, you know, knowing the science behind it and what actually is useful and what's not useful is a really helpful tool. I do like that there is kind of a positive form of procrastination, you know, what you call active procrastination, where sometimes it really is a useful tool because it helps our, us use our time um, in, a, in a more strategic way. But in general, it was just a good reminder, the more I look into procrastination as a procrastinator, like the end product will not be as good. I will not be as creative if I'm not sleeping and I'm not eating well because I left a project for the last minute. And so it's just, it's just another good reminder, you know, even as I'm working on a project right now, I'm like, am I going to procrastinate or do I actually want to plan this out, give myself time, not hate my life over the next week and do this the right way, like a mature adult, um, because it's worth it. The end result will be better and I will not be miserable for an entire week of my life. So the science backs it up. We got to stop procrastinating. Yeah. I mean, there, like you said, there's positive procrastination. Some of us use procrastination to let things kind of settle out in our brains. You know, when, when we're doing work, we're not necessarily writing. We may not be, you know, wireframing the page, but we may be just as we're doing other things, letting our subconscious do some work too. So there are some positives to creativity with procrastination, uh, but you're right. You know, if we leave it to the last minute, if it's creating stress, if it's, you know, if we're literally wasting time and not letting our brains do that work, there, there are definitely better uses of our time. Yeah. And then she mentioned some oftentimes we'll tell ourselves a story that we need to be in the right headspace. You know, it's like, especially for copywriters, we do this. I've done this so many times um, where it's like, well, I can't work on the sales page until... I feel well rested and, and conditions have to be met. It has to be in the morning because that's my peak writing time and I need to be well fed and caffeinated. <laughs> like We have the checklist, but sometimes we just need to just be able to do it, to do the thing without feeling like we're in the right headspace. So that's something I need to remind myself of frequently. I, I can't remember who the writer is that said it, um, but he said, you know, I write when inspiration strikes Unfortunately, it strikes at nine o'clock every morning. I mean, you know, it's I, it's really easy for me to think, well, I can't do this until the desk is clean or until I've done all that research or whatever. And sometimes it just takes that willpower to sit down and say, work starts now and to get with it. Because most of the time you can do something, even if it's at the end of the day and you woke up early and you've been on calls all day and it's 5 p.m., 
you could sit down and map out or do a brain dump or just explore a new idea or create a, um, an outline for a project. Maybe you can't write perfect copy, but there's always something we can do to move the project forward and get out of that procrastination rut that can stop us in our tracks. Yes. I think ending with self-compassion, you know, that's where we circled back to at the end of the conversation. Um, I love that we kind of came back to that when we were talking about mental health and the importance of sleep, wearing a face mask and self-compassion. Um, again, that's just kind of like my ongoing struggle in life is the lack of self-compassion. So that is a priority for me right now. Yeah, I, I appreciate what she shared about taking care of ourselves and just ideas for, yeah, it's self-compassion or just, you know, the, the quick pick-me-ups. And uh, I don't usually struggle too much with it, but it can really make a big difference. You know, just going outside for five minutes or going, you know, taking a short walk, taking breaks, uh, it all matters. We want to thank Dr. Rebecca Fort Gang for joining us on the podcast to give us tools and strategies that we can use in our daily lives to combat procrastination and tap into our willpower. If you want to connect with her, you can find her at RebeccaFortGang.com. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. Outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed today's episode, and I hope that you did, I enjoyed it, please give us a review and let us know what you appreciated from our interview with Dr. Dr. Becky. And you can leave that review on Apple Podcasts. And then be sure to check out our newest podcast uh, all about generative AI and how copywriters and creatives are using it in their businesses and careers. You can check out that new podcast at AIforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Copywriters coming together to help the world write better. Copy and make more money. Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money. Listen to the Kira and Rob's Copywriters Club can make you lots of money as long as you listen through the whole damn episode.